Good afternoon, and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody, and Steve. The show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for the Liberty Block. Good afternoon, Ed. Good afternoon, Jody. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, guys, everyone. Um, it looks like, like we sort of alluded to last week, no matter what you prepare, life gets in the way. And SCOTUS is the topic of the week that everyone is talking about. Jody, we're going to give you the first, uh, first shot. All right. Thank you. Because this is a subject where my initial response, I was picking up those little uh, talking points about the hypocrisy of Republicans from 2016. And quite frankly, my gut reaction was, don't do it. If really, if that's who you were and that's that was your principle in 2016, please don't change your principles. Of course, I want the this spot to be filled by a small government uh, Republican. Okay, maybe the, we don't always have a small government Republican, but you know what I mean? I prefer it by a Republican, but I really don't want hypocrisy and such destruction of principles to meet that end. However, this is where, and my history shows, when you go beneath the talking points and you look closer into facts and details, that's when you can have a change of mind. And this is one of those examples because I'm gonna give uh, credit to the Wall Street Journal had a really, not particularly long, but really poignant sort of just little details. Um, and after I read it, I thought, this is not hypocrisy. I'm just going to give a couple of those that I thought were mind cha uh, opinion changing for me. Um, number one, some people may know this, but I'm just going to bring it up for the purposes of highlighting what facts I learned. 25 times presidents have made nominations to fill Supreme Court vacancies that arose in presidential election years and 21 times the Senate confirmed the nominee. The week, this is mind-boggling, the week after Jimmy Carter lost in 1980, he announced the judicial nomination of a close ally of Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Ted Kennedy, a week after he lost. This person was confirmed as the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals judge um, less than a month later. So the argument that you need to let the voters decide, the voters chose Reagan, and still this person was um, uh, confirmed. And Biden apparently voted for that person who is now on the Supreme Court, what, 1994, this person became then on the Supreme Court. But here's one of the biggest things. So this kind of highlights, and I'm sure you guys will talk about this today, is when a nation chooses a president and a Senate, it makes its choice about who wields the power and bears the responsibility to pick and confirm judges. But when the president and the Senate have different views on judges and judicial philosophy, there's no clear mandate by the people, right? So if, if they're both Republican, then clearly the people have chosen a Republican Senate and a Republican president. They have given the Republicans that mandate to choose the Supreme Court. If they're split, it's a Democrat in the White House and it's a Democrat or a Republican leaning um, Senate, then that's where you say, well, the people have to decide. So it was 
it was those points that I found opinion changing from the uh, Wall Street Journal where I realized this is not about hypocrisy and it's not, um, it's not unprincipled for them to actually do this and get it through. And so to that, I yield the floor. Well, hi everybody, this is Ed. Jody, you've said a lot. Um, I, I think you, you've nailed it that this is certainly not hypocrisy. Um, that there's so many things to unpack from, from the Democrats' position on this, but and, and in no particular order, let's just start with how can the people decide if Joe Biden refuses to say who he would nominate? If you want to make this an election about who we're going to nominate, let Trump announce his, his pick on Saturday, like he said he will, and let Biden say who he's going to pick. But Biden has steadfastly maintained he will not announce who he's going to pick. Now, he's changed his mind about other things. Maybe he'll change his mind about this. But from my perspective, you don't get to make the argument that the people get to decide if you don't tell the people who you're going to nominate, period. Um, number two, the, um, the way the Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and the way they treated every Republican nominee to the Supreme Court in the last 30 years destroys any claim they might have about hypocrisy and about giving someone a fair treatment and having a fair process. These people do not believe in a fair process. And, um, you know, they accused Kavanaugh of things that were just awful and they did it with zero evidence and it was just character assassination. And the vice presidential nominee, uh, uh, Kamala Harris was at the forefront of the attacks on Kavanaugh. You don't get to, to bastardize the process the way they've done over the last 30 years. And, and forget 30 years, even just in the last year or so, when Kavanaugh was nominated, you don't get to do to the process what they did and then claim that the process has to be some pure and clean and, and driven as white snow because they don't treat it that way. So if we're gonna talk hypocrisy, they don't get to make that claim. Um, as, you, as you noted, there's no hypocrisy here because in 2016, the president nominated and the, the Senate refused to confirm. That's, that's the way the constitution is written. It's not that the president nominates and the Senate must confirm. The Senate said, we're not gonna confirm this guy. We don't think Obama's going to win. We don't think that he's, we think, we don't think a lame duck should, should, from the opposite party should make this decision. And if you want to punish us at the polls, punish us at the polls. And Trump and, and McConnell are making the same claim now. If you don't like this, go ahead, punish us at the polls. We don't think you will. We think that you're going to, we think that this is what you want. And this is what we've been elected to do. And I think they're going to do it. Um, and, you know, at the, at the risk of filibustering, uh, let me just make one more point. Um, I've heard Schumer and AOC in particular, and, and, and Pelosi as well, but Schumer and AOC have specifically said that, not said, threatened that if Trump nominates and McConnell and the Senate approve anyone for, for Supreme Court before the election, quote, everything is on the table, unquote. This isn't so much a hypocrisy argument, but it's a how dare you argument. Mm -hmm. it, everything's on the table. 
the president is nominating pursuant to the Constitution. The Senate is, not, is confirming, advising and consenting pursuant to the Constitution. And if they fulfill their constitutional duties, however distastefully you may think that they are, everything's on the table, the Constitution's on the table, my rights are on the table, and, and that's not hyperbole or exaggeration. You have to look at the context right now. We're more than six months into house arrest. We're watching an insurrection in our cities. We're seeing our cities looted and burned and rioted, and Democrats won't do anything to stop it. So when they say everything's on the table, I take them at their word. And I think that they're threatening civil war and they're threatening even greater violence. And you don't treat, when somebody threatens you with violence, you don't give in. We don't negotiate with terrorists. And that's what this is. They are threatening to be terrorists. And I'll tell you, when, when, it, when, when news of Ginsburg's death started circulating Friday night and people started talking about, oh, we've got, we, we don't want a 4-4 Supreme Court in the event of, a, of an election uh, dispute, my, my first thought was, well, election disputes don't even belong in the courts in the first place. If you look at Article 2, Section 1, if there's a dispute about how the electors are to be appointed, it's up to the state legislatures to, to step in and appoint those electors. So it shouldn't fall to the courts in the first place. Um, but even if it did, it would be a really poor excuse to say, well, there's going to be a 4-4 tie, so we need to, to rig the system by putting our guy in and making it 5-4. So that was my initial reaction Friday night. But it didn't take even till the end of the weekend listening to all these threats from the Democrats about how they're going to burn our country down for me to change my mind and say, you don't negotiate with these people. I think Trump should nominate and the Senate should confirm the most conservative candidate that they can find. And there should be no negotiation. There should be no appeasement. They should be slapped down. And, and this should be a campaign issue that Trump should take to the, to the voters. He should remind everybody that while the Democrats in California, in Washington, in New York, are condoning violence in Kenosha, in, in Chicago, all across the country in Democrat-controlled co territory, they are condoning violence. Vi and not just random, you know, small acts of violence, mayhem, mob violence. And now they're threatening that everything is on the table if we don't give them what they want. How dare you? That's my reaction. How dare you? And our side needs to just say, stand athwart and say, absolutely not. We're doing it a different way. And if the voters really want what you want, they'll vote for you. And if not, you should be, you should be handed us a, a tremendous defeat at the ballot box come November. So Ed, um, I totally agree with most of your points. I think the everything on the table is definitely alluding to the fact of burning down cities. Who is that guy, Reza Aslan? I'm not even sure who that is, but who basically said burn down the effing country. Um, so yes, I don't think there's... He was from but CNN. We're in the process of that, right? So Right. So I, 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 I agree with you on that. Um, parenthetically, um, I want to address the filibuster issue. Liberty Block is not planning on canceling the filibuster, so you don't have to worry about filibustering on our show. Um, well, we're not Democrats. We're not Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I posted up on Facebook a couple hours ago, Bill Whittle. I don't know if he, any of you got a chance to watch I did. him. Yeah. I have never seen him so angry. 
as he was, and he basically was saying a lot of what Ed was saying, that we need to fight fire with fire. And he used the um, war metaphor and said, you know, as long as the Japanese were surrendering, we could treat them according to all the conventions. When they started to surrender and then kill us after holding up a white flag, we had to back off and say, wait a minute, we can't play by those rules. We need to crush them. And then the person questioning him kind of got heated and he's like, well, what are you suggesting? If this is war, then it's just going to get worse and worse and it's never going to come to an end. And how do you suggest we get out of this mess? And I really wanted to call up, but you can't call into his show and say exactly how we got out of World War II. Yeah, yeah. You can't go That's back to playing, what is it, uh, somebody at Queensberry's Rules? What's the name of that thing? Um, until you crush Right, until you crush the enemy. And I think America has gone back to being an incredibly civilized society after we totally crush the enemy. And I don't think there is a choice here. We need to totally crush them. I mean, there's so many, so many moving parts here, among which of no matter how many times we nominate these perfect people for the Supreme Court, they either are mushy or they go mushy. Um, I do want to bring up a um, what's probably controversial, but... Love controversy. Okay. I don't. I really shrivel from any the, sort of... Um, well, this is a tough call for everybody. I mean, we've heard about what an unbelievable saint um, Ginsburg was. And of course, some of, uh, some of his best friends were liberals, as we keep hearing about Scalia, that if he was friends with her, then that's we should all learn from that to be friends with these people. But the nasty question is, the elephant in the living room, if abortion is murder, are we supposed to be friends with these people? And if abortion is not murder, why is it such a big deal? And I, I just don't find that most people want to really look at that in the eye and say, wait a minute, if we believe we're killing babies at the rate of hundreds of thousands or millions a year, whatever it is, and especially minority babies, and especially if that quote from Ginsburg from, I think, 1980 about it's culling the population, I'm very happy Scalia was friends with her, but I choose my friends. And if we really believe what we say we believe, which we don't have to, I, I have respect for those who don't believe it, but should we be canonizing them? And I, I think that's a tough question to ask. I don't know, Jody, if you want to comment on it. Sure. So that quote from her, the, what, so she was in the New York Times in 2009, uh, basically saying that. I read over her comment many times. I wish I had it in front of me right now because the first time I read it, I thought, Am I misreading this? And, and when you read the quote, uh, I could see the argument from the left was she was saying that those people in the past, because basically she said um, the, um, abortion is a, a bit of a form of eugenics. She didn't use that word. Population control is what she said, I believe. Um, especially for populations that we don't wanna have too many of. Those were her words. But the, 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 um, the left's argument saying that she didn't mean herself, she meant in the past. And what distressed me about uh, Ginsburg's response, she basically said, everybody just misinterpreted what I said. Um, I'm distressed by that because she literally said, we don't want, populations we don't want too many of. 
we, not they, as in the people in the past that she was supposedly talking about. She said we, which includes herself and removes the context of the past. So I found that distressing. Um, and to your, what you were just saying, Steve, canonizing them. Now, I've got a lot of opinions. I, I'm happy to talk about abortion. I, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you I am a moral mess on that subject. I, I really do want solutions and I don't think the government is it, but um, should we be canonizing people? That was, I think one of my bigger problems is I don't wanna, I don't want to demonize people. I don't want to demonize her. I used to be. I'm still pro-choice, to be honest with you. Not for this, the reasons of, um, not for the reasons of the left. I would. They they have literally made uh, abortion a um, what is it a, a a sacrament. Well, it's it's applauded and praised. It's this rite of passage. How many have you had? Kind of thing. It's really disturbing. I'm pro-choice just because I don't believe that banning things solve the problem. Um, I think that I really do want to solve the problem. I think this notion on the left that um, it's not a problem. I think that's the problem I have to the left is that it's a right. Um, as if it's not a horrifying choice and problem and how can we make it not something to choose without turning people into criminals. You know, on the murder issue, I think it, I have a hard time saying it's not murder. I don't, I don't understand any argument that it's not murder. And this is where I, I get it. I'm a moral mess. I know, I do know that it's, it's, it's murder, but it's a genie that we can't put back in its uh, box. Like, I don't think we can repackage that. And so I want to solve the problem without making all these people into murderers. I wanna solve the problem, just not that way. Okay, so we don't have to demonize, but we don't have to canonize. Exactly. One way of looking at it. I just wanna make one more comment, I'll, then I'll go back to you, Ed. I, I was thinking about this since I first heard about her death and somebody sort of alluded to it in an article I saw this morning, but Ginsburg rolled the dice. There were people who begged her to resign four years ago when they had Obama. And she rolled the dice and they all rolled the dice and said, guess what? We're gonna win. And if we don't win, we're gonna outlast Trump. Well, you know what? You rolled the dice, you screwed up. You don't get to say right now, well, it's only, we only screwed up by a few weeks. Therefore we get what we want. So I just wanted to put that one out there. Well, you sort of asked a complex or a compound question and I'm not sure if you wanted to talk about whether abortion, you know, abortion in general, and whether abortion is murder, or whether we should be befriending our enemies. Um, no, I, what I wanted to say is, if we believe abortion is murder, then I don't. Should we say it's wonderful that Scalia was best friends with her? Now, maybe it's not murder, and that's fine. Right. I mean, if you believe it's murder, I don't know how I could be friends with anybody that I thought was complicit in murder or condone murder. Um, I think that there are good arguments that abortion is not always murder, um, certainly in the first trimester. Um, I think that even if it's, even if it's a, I mean, you know, I, again, I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds on abortion. I mean, it's, you're dealing with living material, you know, it's always, it's always living and it's always human. So it's always living human material. 
the whole question is when does it become an individual person that's endowed with indi individual rights? And that's a complex legal question. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that if you guys want to delve further into that. Um, but I think that I think that an outright ban of all abortions from the moment of conception, in my view, is both unsustainable politically and morally not a good thing. Um, there are lots of instances where I think an abortion is perfectly legitimate and even while it's killing of another living human thing, whether it's a living human being even, um, I think that there are instances where it's, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. And while I wouldn't champion it and I wouldn't, you know, hold it up as some sort of sacrament or some sort of virtue, um, I would say the opposite. I mean, I'll just share a, a short personal story. I mean, I'm not going to get into the details, but uh, my wife and I lost a baby in the 21st week. And when I say lost, we were told that the fetus had no chance to survive at birth. It had no arms, no legs, and no chance to survive. That was what our OBGYN told us. We went and got a second opinion. Second opinion confirmed it. And we were told it's the 21st week. You've got maybe two weeks to make up your mind and then it gets dangerous for my wife. Oh, and there were people, including my wife's parents, who thought that we should carry that, that fetus to term. And I think that would have been an abomination, asking us to plan for a funeral instead of planning for a birth. And I will not ever cede one, one inch of moral territory to people who say that we should have been banned from aborting that fetus, okay? I'm not saying that that's normal or, or the usual, uh, but I'm saying that a blanket ban on all abortions from conception would have forced us to carry that baby for another 18 weeks, planning not a birth, but a funeral. And I don't see how anyone who is pro-life could defend that. But, you know, there are some who do. Um, you know, I don't think that my personal story should be the, the necessary basis of all abortion law in the country. Uh, but in my view, I, don't, I just don't think that an abortion ban from the moment that a sperm fertilizes an egg and creates a zygote is either morally defensible or um, politically sustainable. Okay, let me just, let me try and formulate an opinion here because we definitely don't want to do a show on abortion because it's a super complicated issue. I guess what I want to say is if I believe that all or at least some abortions are murder, then I have the right to detest people who fight to keep it legal. I don't have a right to um, commit aggression against them, even if I would against somebody who's an actual murder. So I'll draw my, lawn there, my line there. But there's nothing wrong with me as a human being if I choose to detest someone who fights for the right to keep all abortion at any time legal. I think that's kind of what I'm saying. I don't have, and by the way, I'm not saying this is my opinion. My opinion is a little more complicated. But if my opinion is like the Catholic opinion that all abortion is murder, then I have the right to detest you. And I, of course, have the right to deny you communion, and I have the right to excommunicate you, and there's nothing wrong with me. So I respect your right to have a very different opinion 
but don't denigrate or take away my right to think I of haven't. you as a murderer. No, I'm not talking to you. Yeah. I'm, and so what I'm trying to say is we're all embarrassed. Well, why can't we be like Scalia and be best friends with Ginsburg? Well, maybe it's wonderful to be best friends with her, but maybe if we truly believe what we believe, we don't have to say that's a, um, a goal to aspire to. In other words, I will be a better person when I can love someone who fights for abortion rights. I don't know if that's true. That's where I kind of want to leave my opinion on it at that. Does that make sense at least? I got a question though. So maybe my uh, part of my contradiction in my mind on you know abortion and murder is murder technically really is a legal term. So maybe the word I'm trying to use is maybe not murder, then maybe it's, it's killing. You can't deny that abortion is killing a being. Right. Killing so a I, I, I need to make that distinction. Thank you, Ed, because you helped me. I'm, con I'm conflating the legal term of murder with the non-legal term of killing. I think all right. abortion is, an, is a killing, is killing. Maybe it's not murder in the legal sense. That's why I love talking with you guys. I get, I learned. Okay. I'm just saying that, that when it is and if it is, I'm not a bad person if I don't like somebody who's pro-abortion. I'm a bad person if I do something against them, but I'm not a bad person for disliking them. I think that's where I'm hoping most people can agree that's a, a good line to make. Scalia is a wonderful person, but you can also be a wonderful person if you don't like these people. And right now, you know, we're the, again, going back closer to the SCOTUS issue, the fact that this is such an unbelievably important decision, and many, many pundits have said it, shows everything wrong with our society, that one person is so important. It's like electing a pope, and nothing else we do matters. And unfortunately, most of this battle is centered on Roe v. Wade. We're fighting over 2A, and we're fighting elections, we're fighting everything else, but Roe v. Wade seems to be the arena of battle. And well, I mean, there's just so much to say about why we're fighting over SCOTUS. We're just totally out of whack constitutionally. Well, I look at the Scalia-Ginsburg friendship and I think I could never have done it. But at the same time, you know, let me defend Scalia in a, in a sense. You know, I've, I've played sports most of my life and uh, basketball and tennis are my two favorites, but especially basketball, because basketball is a sport where uh, you know, you can go down and you get into a pickup game with people you don't even know. And I've done that. And, you know, you can talk between games and find out that someone is some crazy Democrat. But the way he plays basketball, I enjoy playing basketball with him. And Scalia enjoyed going to the opera, enjoyed having dinner and wine and other things with Ginsburg. Not my choice. And it's it's his, you know, his profession is too intellectual and and the disagreements were too intellectual and too close to his professional life for my taste. But I mean, there are times in my life where I've had friends in for limited purposes that uh, in the political arena were certainly not my cup of tea and not people that I agreed with. But um, so I don't think it's necessarily a, a demerit on Scalia's judgment or his character. I mean, on the outside, it's not it doesn't look like something that I would have invested in. And you know, these basketball players that I'm thinking of right now, it's not like we would, I would ever go and, and have dinner with them and, and do things after, you know, anything more than just meet them at three o'clock, you know, at the court. But, um, 
you know, maybe that's all he thought. Maybe that's the extent of the relationship. I right. Don't know. So all I'm saying is it's not a demerit against him, but it shouldn't be a demerit against somebody for taking the opposite view. That's really all I'm saying. Which well, I you agree with that. think is relatively okay. Do, do the three of us agree that the Supreme Court has way too much power if we're so, I mean, literally, this took every other issue off, off the newspapers. This is where I have a lot to learn. I love to have this discussion because it was kind of always my very rudimentary understanding that the Supreme Court really functioned as sort of the, um, well, the word is the referee, right? The referee. But a referee literally can make or break the wins or losses of a game. I mean, the, the play could be played completely one way, but the referee gets to decide whether, whether this ball is foul or not. And the ball may literally not have been foul, but the referee gets to decide. So I always kind of thought the Supreme Court was a huge deal in that um, in that way. And so I'm open. I want to hear more from you guys. Okay. So question, do we agree that the way it functions now, it functions as a super legislature? Well, I, I'll step in and I'll, I'll say to both of your questions, does it function as a super legislature and does it have too much power? I say yes to both questions. And I think the reason for both is the expansion of the 14th Amendment. And this is something that I've been hitting upon during our recent podcasts. The courts have taken over power that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment gives to, to Congress. And insofar as it doesn't give it to Congress, it, it, vests, it vests the power implicitly through the 10th Amendment in state judges, state ju judiciaries. So, you know, the, the section one of the 14th Amendment says that no state shall do shall bridge the privileges and immunities and several other things of, of the citizens of the state. And then section five of the 14th Amendment says that Congress may enforce the, the provisions of that article through appropriate legislation. So on the federal level, it's Congress's job, not the federal court's job. Now, every state judge, every state legislator, every state governor, every state mayor, or city mayor swears an oath to the Constitution. So the Constitution now includes the 14th Amendment. If state actors at the state level are violating privileges and immunities and other rights of the citizens, citizens have recourse through their own state court system. And state judges can and should interpret whether something is a privilege or immunity or an immunity. You know, and for instance, we would talk about, you know, the lockdowns that are going on right now and the house arrests. You know, I don't think that we need a national answer from the Supreme Court of the United States as to whether they're acceptable or not. I think that each state should determine that on its own. And the vehicle through which it should do that would be for private citizens to sue their state representatives or state, you know, the, the executive branch of their government enforcing these restrictions. They should sue in state court. And the state court is still bound to apply the 14th Amendment. And it's up to the, the state court to decide whether you have a right to run your business, whether you have a right to go to church in your town and, or it, it, uh, it, go to church in your state or city. And 
I know where I come out on that and I can make that political decision for myself and, and I could make it for everyone. But I think under our limited federal constitution, that's up to the state governments to decide. And it should only get to SCOTUS as an appeal from the highest court of the state. And, and I think, I mean, this is just a personal view. This is not necessarily a constitutional view, but I think for jurisprudential reasons, I think SCOTUS should be pretty reluctant to take on challenges that come from the state Supreme Court up to the US Supreme Court. Um, I think that SCOTUS for the most part should allow states courts and state legislatures to decide how, how things go in their states. Now, is there a point where, they, where I think that the federal courts maybe, or the federal courts could get involved? I, I don't wanna say, I would leave it open, but I think that the kind of egregious case that would warrant Supreme Court intervention, in my opinion, would warrant action by Congress first. And you know, if you have a divided Congress the way you have right now, it would be up to the president to rally the people and to use his bully pulpit to explain why, Con why Nancy Pelosi should get off her high horse and stop denying everybody else the same right to go to a salon that she's had. And it's up to the president and, and the Republican Senate, in this case, to convince the Democrats in the, in the other half of the legislature to act. And if, and if they can't convince them, and I don't think that you could convince this crazy bunch of Democrats, it's up to these Republicans to make the case. And we have new elections every two years. Even though Senate terms are six years, they're staggered, and you get a third of the Senate replaced every two years. It's up to the elected branch. It should be up to the elected branches to make the case to the people and have them vote in people that will protect their rights. That's the way the system is supposed to work. That's the way I think it would work best. And that would maybe not eliminate, but dramatically reduce the power of the federal courts. That's, and I, don't, I think that even the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't intend for the federal courts to exercise the level of power that they've acquired right now. Um, and some of that is a result of judicial usurpation, and some of it is congressional abdication. And where, where one ends and one begins and the other ends, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that's, that's the answer to, that, to those questions. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, you believe the Supreme Court should almost never be the arbiter and enforcer of civil rights. Only if, if Congress passes leg, appropriate legislation, yes, they can, SCOTUS should and can have jurisdiction and power to adjudicate disputes involving statutes that Congress passes pursuant to the fifth, section five of the 14th amendment. So if Congress, for instance, let's say that, let's, let, let's give a concrete example. Let's say that Congress decides, well, the Second Amendment is a very important right. It's a civil right. And we don't believe that states should be able to abridge the civil rights of their citizens to own firearms. I think that Congress could legitimately pass a law pursuant to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment and abrogate state level restrictions on firearms ownership. Now, I'm not saying they would or should, but that's, that's a legitimate possibility. 
And I think that challenges to that law would come from people who want to maintain gun control in in these areas that have gun control right now. SCOTUS should be able to say, under this statute passed by Congress, the legislature has decided that these state level actions violate the individual rights of the citizens. And even though there's federalism, Congress has spoken and Congress has exercised authority under section five of the 14th amendment and Congress is protecting the rights of the citizens. So we're gonna uphold the statute and we're gonna enforce it. That would be perfectly okay in my view, in my view. What's not okay is for Congress to refuse to act and to defer or just abdicate and let the courts decide, well, is gun ownership a privilege and immunity as, far as the 14th amendment contemplates? Is abortion, is gay marriage, are any of these things, all the things that are so hotly contested, they come from the fact that Congress hasn't acted to protect individuals in the states from these alleged state violations of individual rights. If the state is violating individual rights, then Congress should act. And, and I'll say one last thing and I'll let you guys jump in. With gay marriage, Congress did act. It passed the Defense of Marriage Act. And unfortunately, they they argued it and they they based it on the full faith and credit clause, but they should have based it on Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And I think under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, DOMA is clearly constitutional. And the courts were 100% wrong in striking down DOMA. It should, that, it should not have been struck down. But, you know, sometimes the courts get it wrong. Um, but that would be an exa- another example, a concrete real world example where Congress sees a state level problem. And, and, and actually, it wasn't a, a problem. Congress said state laws that define marriage as one man, one woman do not violate the Constitution. And Congress has that power to make that declaration under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court usurped power by, by not uh, enforcing that. Okay. I think we probably would agree that the usurpation and abdication is win-win. Congress loves not having to make decisions because they are reelected and the courts love taking that on because they're not reelected. So I think that's a symbiosis there. And that's why that's happened. So let's make a theoretical case here. The state of, I don't know, let's take a nice state. State of Louisiana passes a law making it illegal for white bald men to vote. That's a violation of my civil right to vote. I should be able to take it all the way up to the state Supreme Court. What I believe you're saying, Ed, is that I shouldn't be able to take it to the Supreme Court because Congress should be the body that should pass a law saying that's absolutely against the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court should only decide whether or not the rumor that I'm bald or not is true. Well, first of all, you don't file, if in that hypothetical you gave, you wouldn't file your case at the Supreme Court, you'd file it in a federal district court. And in that particular instance, Congress has passed various voting rights case acts. So I, it's, that's not the best example that you could give. Well, it um, is because right now, look at what we're doing with voting rights, whether it's, I'm just trying to stay away from mail-in ballots and all the other voting rights issues and the things that 
you know, de facto make it harder for minorities to vote. So I'm just taking a strange scenario. But what I believe you're saying is it should, the Supreme Court should never be the one to say you have to let a bald white man vote. That should always be Congress's thing. I'm saying that that from, from the, first of all, I'm talking about federal courts in the initial instance, because that's where the cases would be brought. And I'm saying in the initial instance, that shouldn't be a constitutional question. It should be a statutory question. If there's a statute on point, then the, the federal court should have jurisdiction to determine under that statute whether whether the statute is, has been violated by the state law. Um, and, and if there is no statute, there still there's legal recourse, but it's not in the federal courts, it's in the state courts. Okay, so that's what you're saying, and that's what I'm trying to clarify, yeah. that the only thing the federal court should be able to get involved in is to say whether or not I'm bald. But if I want to change the law that the state no. of Louisiana passed, I have to go through state courts or Congress. Well, the state court now rules that this law is okay. We're cool with this law. Yes. Right. And then it goes up to the state appellate court and the state right. Supreme Court and they all uphold it. Right. I would, you know, I'm not sitting here, you know, I'm not President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. So I haven't written any articles and thought it all the way through. I think that there probably are instances um, where I think that the federal courts might be, it might be appropriate for the courts to get involved. For instance, certain types of blatant censorship, uh, uh, you know, certain issues involving uh, elect, you know, elections, uh, political campaigning. I mean, there are some things I can think of um, but I only raised them because I just haven't thought them all the way through. I think that if anything, that there, those are exceptions, if they are in fact exceptions, I think the general rule is it should be up to the state legislatures and the, and the state courts to interpret the, the bounds of the 14th amendment within the particular state. I don't think it's up to a, a federal district judge in San Francisco to hear a case and issue an injunction nationwide that that affects everybody from Nebraska and Ohio and, and Tennessee and, and New York and everywhere else, which is what happens right now. Um, and, and California seems to be, you know, California in the Ninth Circuit is the place where a lot of these cases are brought and you get federal district court judges making rulings on things that were never their province in the first place and issuing injunctions, not just for their district, not even just for their state, but for the entire nation. And I think it's just wrong. And, you know, is there a perfect system? No, but I think that the system that I'm advocating and the, not only that I'm advocating, but I think that the framers of the 14th Amendment and of the, the original constitution set up, I think it's much better. And the mistakes that happen under that system are far less pernicious than the mistakes we have under the current system, which allows federal, just, federal district court judges and then federal appeals court judges and the Supreme Court to, to legislate matters of local concern and to impose legislative decisions on legislatures throughout the country. And I have to tell you, you've kind of brought me over to your opinion, which I didn't agree with before. He does that to so me too. So don't back down. <laughs> I think you're actually making a really interesting yeah, argument yeah. that almost all civil rights should only be enforced by legislatures, whether state or national, 
and that it may have been a mistake to let any of these civil rights cases, which I guess since the mid 60s, we've always run to the courts for. Well, you know, there was that Daniel Horowitz, a podcast. Um, one of the things he said on there, and I can't remember if it was him or his guest, Derek, can't remember his last name, but uh, talked about it's a lot easier, right? Uh, if you're trying to sort of control what people do to get in the minds of five judges than it is to make your case to the, United, the people of the United States, right? So that's just a faster way to get- Well, that's, that's why the left loves the courts. They basically yeah. have to change one or two opinions because right, for some right. reason, the left is almost always lockstep. I don't know too many people losing sleep in June over what Sotomayor is gonna rule. Now, yeah, once in a while she goes a different way, but for the most part, that doesn't keep us up at night like John Roberts does. But I think Ed, you're making an interesting point, Ed. So if I understand you, is this what's being taught by any constitutional law professors in your understanding? Um, I really can't speak to that. I don't think that what I, that my point of view is, is common outside the Federalist Society. And I think even in the Federalist Society, some people would agree, some people would disagree. Um, but I still think I'm right. Well, you may be right, and, and I'm kind of curious. Is this something, I've never paid attention. This is not usually something that's asked of Supreme Court nominees in the quote unquote hearings. They talk about the role of the Supreme Court, but I don't remember this ever being discussed. Um, well, I'm not, a, I, I'm not an expert on that. I mean, I do follow somewhat. Um, I think that the incorporation doctrine, which says that the 14th Amendment just applies against the states and that private citizens can enforce it in the federal courts uh, is widely accepted. Um, it's, it's not frequently, uh, I don't think I've ever seen an opinion that suggested that, a, a judicial opinion that suggested that that's a mistake. Um, certainly not in the last, you know, I mean, I've been practicing law for 25 plus years. Um, I, I can't remember a decision during the time I've been practicing that said that. Um, you know, before incorporate before the before the 14th Amendment swallowed up the rest of the Constitution, it, it was debated, it was hotly debated. And the advocates of incorporation and, and having the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular, decide these divisive social issues, uh, until that position prevailed, it was hotly contested. But since, since it's prevailed, it's, no, it's not really contested anymore. Um, it would be great if somebody could get it to, you know, could, okay. could reignite so I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a history knowledge question. My uneducated assumption or understanding was that those amendments were passed as a way of crushing the South and they weren't all that well thought through. Are you saying that I'm mistaken on that? Um, you know, there's a lot of criticisms of the radical Republicans and the Reconstruction Republicans post-Civil War. Um, yes, there was a lot of um, retribution that was tried to be taken on, on the, on the con former Confederate states, but, you know, I don't, I don't look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and see anything in them that's designed, you know, that's in any way nefarious or sinister or, or punitive or anything like that. I mean, I think that there were legitimate attempts 
to address legitimate problems, which was the newly emancipated slaves. You know, it's interesting because I'm going to ask that question about something else that's relevant to this whole SCOTUS thing. When they passed the 17th Amendment and took away the states um, voting for their United States senators, did they realize what an effect that was going to have on this advice and consent for Supreme Court justices? Now, my understanding is that when the 17th Amendment was passed, advice and consent for Supreme Court justices was not nearly as controversial as it is today. And it wouldn't have made all that much of a difference. But today, where the senators don't represent the states anymore, and now the other side is yelling, almost as if they want the House to have a, a role in this. So when they passed the 17th Amendment, were they looking at all those ramifications? Well, I mean, I think that the progressives at the time that the, that the 17th Amendment was ratified, which I believe was 1913, I think that they were looking at overriding the Constitution one small piece at a time, and that was just one way they were doing it. Um, but I, historically, it's not the case that once the senator, once the states lost their power over the Senate, that these these battle, these confirmation battles got uh, contentious. They didn't become contentious until Bork's. No, I'm not saying they were linked. I'm just saying I don't know that anybody foresaw because it wasn't contentious back then that it's going to have an effect if it ever does. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, there were 60 years in between. I agree with you. I, think, I mean, I, I think that my, my view on that is probably a minority view. I, I don't think it's I, mean, I, I would be in favor of reversing the 17th Amendment, but I don't think it's a huge issue. Um, I think that the misconstruction and the misapplication of the 14th Amendment is what has made these confirmation hearings so contentious. The left knows it can't win its arguments at the ballot box, so it tries to win it by controlling the judiciary, by controlling the bureaucracy. And ultimately, today, we're seeing that they're also trying to win the argument by changing instead of changing the minds of the electorate, they're just changing the composition of the electorate by opening the borders and, and ushering in people that in the left's beliefs will vote leftist, communist, people that are coming from third world countries. Uh, notice the left is not particularly excited about immigration from uh, you know Western Europe, uh, Western industrialized countries. Uh, they're all for uh, immigration from countries that they believe, and not just they believe, that have a history of supporting dictatorship and collectivism and statism. And so I think that what's happened is the left is trying, they know they can't win elections at the ballot box. So like I said, they try and control the judiciary, they try and control the bureaucracy, and they try and control the electorate by bringing in their people from outside the borders. And I think it's slightly tangentially, I think it's interesting that whatever powers the Constitution gave the Senate specifically, like treaties, I believe, the advice and consent on appointees and stuff, we're in a totally different world where the senators did a totally different, you know, performed a totally different role on behalf of a different constituency. And I just think it's fascinating when they gave the senators that role, they were thinking along 
totally other lines. And I know it's, a, it's off the subject specifically, but it's just kind of interesting. When they gave the Senate those powers, it was a different Senate. Um, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. I mean, okay, they gave because they were giving the power disproportionately to the states and not to the people's representatives, and they did that on purpose. They, they mean the framers, right? They could have given that power to the House. They gave it specifically to those representing the states, disproportionately. So I think it's interesting to look at why did they give those to the ones who aren't proportionally representing versus the other ones, and I'm sure they did oh. that on purpose. Well, they did, because I think that they saw the states as sovereign. You know, I've been making the argument earlier in this show and, and for weeks, you know, for on prior podcasts that, you know, the states are the bastion. They're, they're the fundamental power structures in our right in our system of government. And I think that appointing senators and giving the Senate an equal say in the bicameral legislature was the way that the framers created a vested power or retained power for the states separate apart from having the 10th amendment retain power for the states, having the state's legislatures control appointments to the Senate was also a way of, of elevating state level power. Mm -hmm. and, right. And uh, I'm saying is they did it on purpose. They wanted yes. Vermont to have the same say as New York in picking judges. They did that on purpose. It wasn't a mistake. That's just kind of what I'm pointing out. Yeah. So, and I don't think we realize it because most of us forget that before the 17th Amendment, it was designed a totally different way. Just want to bring up one other point on this whole SCOTUS issue, the political issue. At what point are the Democrats going too far and some of their threats are really going to come back to bite them? First of all, in the election results itself, if they don't manage to steal it, and then going on and on, just like when they broke the filibuster for everybody except Supreme Court judges several years ago, and now that's coming back to bite them. The fact that they're threatening so many unbelievable things right now, is anyone telling them, guys, um, you're going a little far? Four weeks before, six weeks before an election? And now it's more of a political question. I think so the scariest thing, the, the scariest thing about that is how many people don't think they've gone too far. I think that's the part that keeps me up at night why aren't people waking up? Why would, why is that okay? Um, threatening violence, you know, turning a blind eye to violence. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why people don't think they've already gone too far. Yeah, you're right. We're sitting here taking it and saying, I don't understand. we will burn the effing country if you appoint a judge mm -hmm. and are people up in arms about it? Not enough as far as I, I can see. I don't think the Democrats have a conscience in that respect. I think that they think that they can get away with anything. And um, there are a lot of things they don't like about Trump and the Republicans. But um, I think one of the, the biggest things that they dislike about Trump is that he doesn't sit there and take it. He doesn't sit there and try and apologize. He doesn't sit there and, and try and uh, assume the best about the, the Democrats. Uh, so many, you know, Bush and Romney types, you know, when the Democrats would go too far, You'd have the you know Bush and the Bush and Romney types were the type that would say, well, we need to be the adults in the room. We need to you know these are just unruly children, and we just need to make nice to them, and we need to let them throw their little tantrum, and then everything will be okay. And Trump isn't like that. Trump says you're going to throw a tantrum, you're going to be punished, and I mean metaphorically, not literally, um, and and that just drives them insane because they can't win, they can't beat him, 
Um, I don't think, I don't think that anybody knows what, how, how the election is going to turn out or, or specifically how much fraud is going to be perpetrated. I think that if will we, we ever a, know, Ed, will we ever know? I mean, well, really? We'll know when we get the results because I think. Will we? Yeah. I think they're going to lie about that too. Well, I, 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 let me say it like this. I think if we had a genuinely free and fair election, there is no doubt in my mind Trump would get probably close to 60% of the vote. I agree. It would be a gigantic landslide. The only chance that the Democrats, that Biden has right now is massive fraud. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats know it. Um, Pennsylvania has just, there was a court decision allowing Pennsylvania to, to go, I think, nine days past election day counting ballots. Uh, there was a decision that came down in the last day or so from North Carolina, where actually wasn't a decision. It was a, it was a consent decree where some left-wing front group sues in, in court saying that uh, the, you know, early voting isn't enough. Uh, people are going to vote right up until election day and the ballots may not arrive in time. So we need, we need to be able to count votes beyond election day. And they entered a consent decree. Uh, North Carolina, both houses of the legislature are Republican, but of course the governor is Democrat. So the Democrats are, are the, control the executive branch and they entered into a consent decree settling the litigation. And the consent decree allows ballots to be counted for, I think it was 11 days after or either nine or 11 days uh, after election day. So that just is gonna give the Democrats time to figure out how many ballots they need to harvest, how much fraud they need to perpetrate. And this is all, this is all a subterfuge. It went outside the bounds of the legislature. The legislature doesn't pass a law. Governor Cooper doesn't sign the law. He just, instead you have these left-wing groups that file lawsuits and, and they perfected this from the environmentalists. The environmentalists do the same thing. You get some environmental group that sues the some state and they, they make a demand to settle that would never ever pass the legislature, but the executive branch as part of its uh, conduct, you know, decision to settle lit litigation, they file a, they, they agree to settle a case and they enter a consent decree. And then, and they agree to a whole bunch of changes that would never have made it through the legislature. And this is another, this is, this is one that, you know, in, in voting would never have made it through the North Carolina legislature, but you've got a consent decree and the, the, the Democrats are going to have, you know, more than a week, well more than a week after election day to come up with ballots and to figure out how many they need to win. So in a free and fair election, there's no doubt in my mind how this election would go. But there will be doubt as long as the Democrats ha have the opportunity to commit fraud. And that that's the only thing that's really on the table. Uh, when, when you guys both ask, you know, do they know if they've gone, gone too far? I think they do. And I think that it's sort of a Thelma and Louise kind of thing. If you remember that movie from 20 or 30 years ago, where once they reached a point of no return, they just kept driving. And I think the Democrats are just, they're going to keep driving. And they think that a miracle is going to come and maybe it will, maybe they've got enough fraud lined up to, to steal this election, take charge and ram through everything they want. That That's why they want to do away with the filibuster. They want to be able to just 
get 51 votes in the Senate, a majority in the House and a president. And in two years, they will completely transform this country and we won't recognize it. And there'll be nothing anybody can do. So well, they have they have the media and the education system in their pocket. So as they're driving too far, the 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 word on the street is all is well. They're getting a the means to the end is appropriate, right? Lying is the means to the end, so it's okay. Murder is a means to an end, so it's okay. So I think, you know, I don't think they see it as too far, is no. I guess what I'm trying to say. They have no reason to see it as too far because the narrative in the media is going to be, you haven't gone far enough yet. Keep going. You're doing it right. Keep going. You're doing it right. And there's a lot of people going back to how I started this whole conversation. There's a lot of people who capture their information here on the top and they don't look under the hood of the car. They don't look under the little talking points, those little feel good talking points. Oh yeah. It's a good thing to do this. Even though it's bad, it's good in the long run. Just, it's okay. It's, it's going to be good in the long run. Let them do this horrible thing because it's good in the long run. They're fed that spoonful of nonsense on a regular basis. So the Democrats have no reason to think they've gone too far, in my opinion. I think well, I'm going to close. My question is, how many more mostly peaceful protests can this country survive? I don't know, but I've got, you know, my, my triplets are going to be 13 next week. And I'm terrified for what's coming because I, where do I go? I, I I I don't know. I don't. I'm not sacrificing my babies. I don't know what to. Do. I, it's scary. I'm trying to. I'm trying to arm them intellectually as much as I can, um, but I'm afraid for the future. Our kids. That's a good place to end for me. I mean, I agree with that. You know, I've got a child of my own, and I worry about the future for my child and for everybody else's child. Um, and not just long-term, I worry about what's coming in yeah. November. I mean, I feel like yeah. we are living through an insurrection right now. And the Democrats are threatening to make the insurrection worse if they don't get their way. Um, and if they don't get their way on the Supreme Court nomination, which is where we started today, they've already told us they're gonna make it worse. And if they don't get their way on election day, I worry about what they're gonna do. I mean. I, Worry not in the sense that I, I refuse to, you know, I, I hide under my bed or anything, but I think that we're on the precipice of something really potentially awful. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know, I made a comment earlier this week that it, it, it feels, you know, obviously I'm, none of us is old enough to have been alive in 1914, but, you know, reading the history, it feels like the summer of 1914 before the Archduke was assassinated. You know, you had a 99 year period of peace since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. You know, we're coming to an end of peace. You know, we've, we've been in, you know, ever since the Floyd riot started at the end of May, you know, America's cities have been burning and every, every time something else happens, it gets worse, not better. And there's going to come a point where the, where worse is no longer worse. It's going to tip into civil war or if not civil war, you know, civ widespread civil unrest. And right now only one side is fighting. And when the other side starts fighting, it's going to get ugly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that was a really good comment you had made, by the way, about the 1914 issue. I'm only slightly surprised by how many pundits and writers more and more towards the mainstream are using words like civil war and secession in titles of articles. Anyway, we'll wrap up for today. 
We should be back next Wednesday, hopefully at regular time. Within an hour or so, this show will be up on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please subscribe. Thank everyone for joining. And thanks a lot to Ed and Jody for another great show. Thanks, thanks everybody. Guys.